and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Sunday, June the 4th, 2023. We're back to clothing, what you wear. We've done a couple of shows before on clothing, particularly women's clothing. One with Kimberly Chrisman Campbell uh, on her 20th century history of skirts, fashioning modern femininity in the 20th century. We had an interesting conversation about femininity and feminism and dress. And then also a very intriguing conversation with Victoria Finley, another fashion historian on the hidden history of the material world. Victoria has a book out, Fabric, The Hidden History of the Material World, which is a rather broad analysis of, of the history of fabric. Uh, we're continuing that theme today with another very distinguished historian of fashion, Dr. Kate Strasdin, who teaches... Um, in the southwest uh, of England, and she has a really interesting new book out, The Dress Diary of Miss Anne, of Mrs. Anne Sykes. Uh, it's a book that came out earlier this year in the United Kingdom and is about to be released in, in the U.S. It's a book reconstructing, I guess, uh, Victoriano or 19th century England through dress uh, and... Um, Kate is joining us from Devon. Kate, is that fair? What were you trying to do in the book, The Dress Diary of, Miss Anne, of Mrs. Anne Sykes? Were you trying to reconstruct Mrs. Anne Sykes, uh, 19th century England, dress, or, or all, of, all of the above? I, I think all of the above, really. It, it's the sense that you can have a single object, which is what this is. It's, a, it's a, an album that was kept by a woman from 1838 through to the mid-1870s. And it's the idea that through that single object, you can, this, this micro-history, you can build a kind of macro world. So you can find all of those wider stories, not only about individual biographies, about the people that, about her, Anne Sykes herself, but also the people that she included in her life, but that within that, you have those broader themes that were absolutely intrinsic to everybody's world. So fabric production, um, shopping, travel, care of clothes, morning etiquettes, things that just affected everybody that you see through the lens of, of dress and textiles. And so, yeah, it's a bit of a bit of all those things. Would it be fair to say, um, uh, Kate, that the period you're studying, which is the pre- photography period people thought of fabric and clothing in a very different way as a way of reconnecting with the past and imagining the future uh, in an odd way as a substitution for photographs I think that's very much what this is and I think whereas other women of the period were perhaps keeping autograph albums where they might collect samples of poetry or you might press flowers or all of those things that people do to memorialize their world at that point she chose to do through scraps of fabric and in in over 2,000 different samples that came from more than 100 different women that she encountered in her life as well as her own wardrobe she used those fabrics as the kind of 
the reminder of the places that she'd been and the people that she knew, because I think textiles can be incredibly powerful at reminding you of, of past times and lives that you that you in, interacted with. And she did that really successfully. So yeah, I think it was that that knowledge of cloth and understanding the materiality of the of the little swatches themselves was a very powerful memory. Yeah, it's the tangibility that's so intriguing. So step back a little bit. Tell me how you found this dress diary and how popular was the keeping of dress diaries, uh, the, the kind that Mrs. Anne Sykes kept. Uh, uh, did, did many women, particularly middle-class 19th century women in England, did they, did they keep these diaries? Who, who pioneered it? There was a there's a very famous example at the Victorian Albert Museum in London that was kept by a lady called Barbara Johnson. And she kept her album from the late 18th century through to the early years of the 19th century. And that was very much a kind of it had financial principle to its heart. She was keeping a swatch of fabric and recording how much she had paid for it because it became it was a kind of um, a, a, a way of keeping a track of her finances. So that was that had a very specific kind of. Uh, it was like a bank balance almost. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it was um, an accounting ledger. Yeah, d developed yeah. through through fabric. Exactly, and so that's a very significant album. I haven't found any others in the UK that are like it. There are several in the US actually. So I found about six or seven in collections, uh, different collections in the US. So I think probably women were doing it, um, but as often as so often is the case with things that women made in the home this kind of thing wouldn't necessarily have been valued and so how it came to me was entirely serendipitous uh, I am a lace maker and uh, one of the groups that I attended the one of the el more elderly members of the group approached me and said I have a load of things that I'm getting rid of I wondered if you'd like it because she knew what where my interests lie uh, and I went to her apartment in Plymouth in Devon and she the very last thing that she drew out from a trunk at the bottom of her bed was this object wrapped in brown paper and she told me that she had acquired it in the 1960s she'd been working in London in the theatre and somebody that was working with her at that time had been to Camden Market one Sunday and paid just a few pence for this thing and didn't have any provenance, it didn't come with any kind of identifying features, just he thought it was a curiosity and, and that she might like it because it contained fabrics. And so she'd kept hold of it and and taken it to Devon with her when she retired, uh, to, retired to the Southwest uh, later in her life, and then gave it to me. So it was an entirely kind of accidental survival. I think because these things generally weren't given a what great deal look, have you got it there can you wave it at the screen I, I can i can show it to you it's right i mean for there. people just listening it shows you need to watch this on I video too, but it's going to show us the physical dress diary of mrs ann's side so, it, it kind of lives in my office and um it's uh it's just bigger than a4 size so it's quite a chunky um object and it's covered in pink silk I'm just getting it out now. Um, and it's a sizable thing because it's so fat. 
um, because it's got so many pieces. Wow. So for people who are just listening, this is really incredible. looks like the... Uh... It's like an enormous encyclopedia. It's massive. Yeah, so, and it was um, it originally. It would have been much smaller. Um, well, this uh, for, for you. This is like winning winning the lottery, Kate. I know it? It, it really was. I mean, I'm just trying. I'll just carefully show you. These wow, are the pages. They're pale blue pages, and onto every page in a kind of octagon. Each um, each piece she cut into a, into a sort of octagon shape. She pasted these swatches onto the pages, mm. and then above each swatch, she wrote a small caption uh, that was either a name, a year, um, a there might occasionally be another identifying feature of that particular um, swatch. She might indicate that it had been worn as a wedding dress or a, a morning gown, something like that. So it's quite sparse. I call it a diary, but it's, I mean, in the loosest... Yeah, but in a way, it is a diary. It's where yeah. diaries and albums come together. And in our digital age, it's reassuringly physical, isn't it? It is, it is. And it has, it's retained all of its colour because these swatches were were pasted into the album uh, when they were still relatively new. And then, of course, they don't lose any of their colour. So you get this real sense of, of a vibrant world, much much brighter than we might imagine. So tell us who this Mrs. Anne Sykes was. So you use this uh, album to research back into the life of Mrs. Anne Frank, uh, mm. Mrs. Anne, not Frank, Mrs. Anne Sykes. Yeah. Um, as a way of, so you use the, the dress diary to reconstruct this 19th century Victorian woman. Tell us about her and how you did that. Well, Helpfully, just on one occasion, she did actually, uh, because all of the captions were written in the third person. So she, they would just have a name and she would never describe herself except once. So just once she described a dress and then said, it's the dress I first wore in Singapore. So had she not kind of waved her hand at that point, I think it would. Yeah. Here it we have some images, by the way, of, of her in Singapore. So uh... yeah, yeah, yeah. They're so, so. And I managed to discover that Anne Sykes had been born in Lancashire in 1816. And she was the, the heart of this. Yeah, exactly. The textile right in the heart. of. And I wonder, I do wonder if that really is, suggests why she was so interested in textiles. They were the very sort of foundation of her family, uh, her family's wealth, because she was a wealthy, she, she was kind of upper middle class. She's her father was a man called James Burton, who was a, a cotton spinner in Tilsley, and he had four mills and over a thousand factory hands. So they were a comfortable family, and she would have had been surrounded by the by the products of that world. And she married a man called Adam Sykes in 1838 in Lancashire. And Adam was a merchant who worked for uh, companies that were trading in Singapore. And in 1840, he was given the job of heading up that particular firm's operations in the region and so Anne and Adam traveled to Singapore in 1840 where they lived for the next seven years so this is a this is an album that's about domestic life but kind of at the same time is also about an unusual degree of travel um she went lived in Singapore for seven years and then actually lived in Shanghai for two years right. so the, the politics of this uh, um Again, I was going to call you Anne, all these Freudian eras here, uh, Kate. Um, the politics of this are interesting in all sorts of different levels. Yeah. Of course, 
Mrs. Ann Sykes, his father, who ran the, the mills, would have been using cotton probably from uh, the slave system in the United Absolutely. States. Absolutely. Uh, this was also the heart of the British Empire, the Industrial mm -hmm. Revolution. What did your research for the book tell us about the nature, the socioeconomic and political nature of industrializing England, which used its power in textiles to essentially colonize the world? Yeah, it completely did. And that's really at the heart of this. I think that's what makes this this kind of object, you know, this relatively small object so global in, in many respects. So, yes, all of the cotton that would have been coming through Anne's father's mills absolutely was picked by the hands of the enslaved in the southern states. And uh, it was only there was a small in the UK at that time there was a small but growingly uh, kind of increasingly vocal group of people who were trying to encourage the consumption of free labor cotton so cotton sourced from the united states but that had been picked by uh, free free labor uh, so there's that growing it was a quaker movement that was starting to become more established and um, explain what was that a, a theory or a practice it was a practice, so but it was very difficult. One of the local, one of the commentators at the time said it was like bailing out the Atlantic with a spoon. It was the idea that they were sourcing from small scale producers in um, in in the states, other usually other Quaker farmers. Yeah, so it's rather like the movement now uh, when it comes to coffee of yes, a fair trade, trade kind of initiative. I I'm curious, did anything? Did you? excavate anything on her opinion or her associate's opinion of the civil war because i'm assuming that m many people in the textile industry would have actually been sympathetic at least in material in terms of their material interests to the southern states yeah it's really and and that's what's that's what's frustratingly absent from this is that you don't get any sense of Anne's voice herself uh, you don't get any sort of helpful indication about where she sat other than the fact that obviously financially her family benefited very very much from that from that world um and i haven't what was uh, what i'd hoped all along was that perhaps in the archive somewhere there would be this lovely bundle of letters that anne had written and i could marry up the object with with some other narratives that she created but that wasn't the case um and so very much i was kind of having to try and fill in the gaps of knowing on the one hand an awful lot about her life in terms of I could tell you what she wore at any given time and what she would have looked like and what that what that garment would have amounted to and yet her face is completely anonymous I don't know what she looked like I don't know what she thought I like to think that she and Adam had this kind of happy marriage with their travels around the world but they might have been miserable I have no, no clue and so it's a really it's really interesting to have have so much of someone's um, sartorial world but nothing really about their actual their actual thoughts and feelings what are the what and, does the your your fashion historian uh, on your twitter page you have all sorts of images of victorian fashion of one kind or mm -hmm. another um, all of it fascinating. What did your research in this book suggest to you about how women in particular treated clothing differently in the 19th century? Or is it really reveals that 
the women have always been for one reason or other obsessed with clothing and nothing much changed between the 19th and the 21st centuries um i think it's it's a it's an idea around agency so i think what's really interesting about women in the 19th century is that obviously it's very well documented that women experienced all sorts of privations and and um injustices through uh either through the legal uh the legal world or other areas of life most areas of life and yet dress was a, was a space over which they had a great deal of agency mm. and so i think it's it's something that they could control and that made it very important i think also women at that time had much more knowledge about textiles than we do now and i think Which in many ways much, learn... right? well uh, yeah but i think the idea that they would know very they would know the differences between weaves they would know how to use different weight of cloth to for, depending on the garment they would they were they were much more knowledgeable about not only the construction of their garments but also the maintenance of them so they would know how to mend them they would know how to care for them and I think that there's a great deal that we could learn from that uh, thinking about the model that we that we have to move towards now which is away from fast disposable fashion we have to kind of start valuing clothes again and you know it's always been written off as superficial and and frivolous fashion because it's associated with with um women and all of you know all of that kind of uh narrative that goes with it but you know it's it's incredibly important and and I think we could learn a lot from the way Anne Sykes thought of her clothes we did a show with um Antonia Fraser distinguished English writer, a uh, book about uh, Caroline Norton and her fight for justice for women. Uh, Caroline Norton was a very prominent 19th century feminist for fighting for the rights of uh, women to divorce. To, to, as the feminist movement began to develop throughout the 19th century with people like um, uh, Caroline Norton, uh, Kate, do you think that clothing began to be thought of differently did women like elizabeth uh norton do you, i'm not sure how familiar you are with her but uh, the, the the kinds of early feminists did they begin to rethink clothing in terms of their identity and and and, and women's rights it, it, in a way i guess maybe consciously or otherwise trying to move away from frivolity or what was perceived as frivolity there's always been, clothing's always been political. You only have to look at the kind of the range of cartoons in, in publications like Punch through the 19th century to show that anxieties around the enfranchisement of women often went hand in hand with depictions of these kind of mannish masculine women who were um, casting off the trappings of appropriate female dress. And there was a great deal of anxiety that... Uh, that this kind of masculinization of dress was the natural result of, of any kind of additional freedoms for women throughout the 19th century. And there's, I think it's, you know, dress has always been used in that way as a kind of political tool. I mean, you only have to look at the way that reporting in, in the press, for example, around um, female politicians is still very much 
the descriptions were yeah, about what they were doing. think of uh, Mrs. Thatcher. Yeah, Theresa May, Mrs. Thatcher. Who was there. Exactly. Of course, this was the time yeah. of Queen Victoria. You, Your previous book was Inside the Royal Wardrobe, Address History of Queen Alexandra, the, the wife of, the, of, of Victoria's son who took over the crown. Um, you, your, your Twitter page is full of images of, of powerful dresses or dresses of powerful women. To what extent, I, I mean, Victoria wasn't a feminist, but she was a powerful woman. To, to what extent did Queen Victoria reshape, so to speak, a women's sense of fashion? And how much of this, given our, in my view, rather odd obsession with the royal family, how much of this did come from in the 19th century, a royal family that was actually significant and powerful. I think you're right that Queen Victoria, she was very powerful. And although we have that sense of her as rejecting uh, certainly fashionable dress after the death of her husband, Prince Albert, she nonetheless very clearly recognised that dress could be a powerful tool, uh, particularly in terms of conveying your public image. Uh, she quite often wrote to her son to to Edward warning him of the follies of of appearing too fast in in dress and trying to cut uh cut an appropriate figure because she knew that people that 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 you would be judged on making the wrong decision uh in your public facing life and certainly Alexandra who who was the subject of my research she she trod those boundaries very very carefully she knew as this kind of the Princess of Wales, she was often called the People's Princess, that she had a role to play in appealing to, to public, public sensibilities at a time where, uh, certainly when she first married Edward, the royal family was incredibly unpopular. There was a great sort of upswell in, in Republican feeling at that point because Queen Victoria had become very uh, absent and not the kind of figurehead that people had come to expect and so um there is that sense of of the royal family in its very powerful position then although still constitutional but uh, but the kind of celebrity status that alexandra brought was very much rooted in how she how she clothed herself and she looked very and elegant at least from the from the cover of the yeah book. and she did foot wrong she was very good at getting it what about the, uh, the, the class right. element i mean it seems to me again maybe unfair generalization but there there's this odd cultural alliance between the royal the upper class and the, the working class in england always has been was in terms of your research on uh, mrs anne sykes of course the 19th century was marked by the appearance of the world's first real industrial working class who often worked in the mills. Was there, was, was Mrs. Anne Sykes in your view, did she have, so to speak, class consciousness? Of course, Marx and Engels did all their research in 19th century mm. England. I think Engels even went to a, a textile factory in, 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 in the North to, to do research for the manifesto. Um, what, what have you discovered from your research and particularly in this book in terms of class consciousness uh, it's a really fascinating and rich area, obviously. It is. And I think inevitably, I mean, I, I think that um, Anne Sykes comes from, from new money in a way. You know, she is that new, her father's that new industrialist that... Wanted to that probably old, buy into the aristocracy. Yeah, exactly. So 
probably the the kind of old aristocracy would have very much turned their nose up at someone like James Burton because he was he was new money he was that sort of upstart but wealthy man um and so I think Anne couldn't have but failed to be very conscious of that at the same time when it comes to dress I think the notion that that you only are fashionable if you have money is and ever has been untrue. There are there are many well-documented pieces of research now that look at the way um, all sorts of different social classes enjoyed dress. And, uh, and obviously there, there is a, a, a component in terms of wealth and what you can afford to buy, but the, the thriving secondhand markets and the, and the small details that people would make to their clothing um, does indicate that people were interested in what they wore and their self-presentation, even if budgets were wildly different. I mean, if you'd have wandered from the, the middle-class, prosperous neighbourhood of Mrs. Anne Sykes into one of the mill towns, I mean, the women in the mill towns would have dressed, if not in rags, certainly dramatically different. And then an, an enormously, a, a vivid contrast with today, particularly in the United States, where the wealthy and the poor seem, at least in my mind, to dress alike. Yes, there's definitely, um, there would have been very obvious differences and the amount of fabric that you could, because because fabric was very, very costly, but there were, uh, there were many, many secondhand um, markets that allowed people to acquire garments um, and and so you you may have only had one good dress, but there were different ways that people could embrace difference through things like you know accessories were so much more important then than they are now, and so the idea of of trimming hats with new new ribbons and and buying smaller things that indicated um, an interest in change and difference that was part of the landscape in the 19th century my my wife is a quilter and of course there's a, a rich tradition of quilting especially in southern us uh, associated with african americans uh, to what extent was um fabric i mean there, there weren't of course ready ready to wear clothing to what extent was a woman like ann sykes doing her, her own uh, sewing, making of clothing, would she have outsourced it? And if you were wealthy, would you have outsourced it? And of course, in terms of poverty, would you have used uh, something like quilting to manifest your power of some sort? Uh from the 1850s, when when publications like the Englishman's Domestic Magazine started to produce actually paper patterns, because the sewing machine had been uh, more was, was more widely available, there were that that would have been an option for many women. But I suspect Anne would not have made her own clothes. She would have had a dressmaker, so she would have bought her own fabric, and she would have made those decisions around what cloth she wanted. But then she would have taken that cloth to a, to a trusted dressmaker who would make the garment into the style that Anne, as the client, would have would have determined. And so but what she would have been able to do is that she would perhaps have been able to embellish things. So there are a few swatches in the 
in the album that have um, kind of hand-stitched chain-stitch motifs on there. So it's it's likely that she would have been able to embellish things, uh, mend things, clean things, but the actual making of the entire garment would have been something that she wouldn't have needed to do because dressmakers were um, prevalent. There were hundreds and hundreds of dressmakers. Um, thousands. You know, I mean, tens of thousands. thousands. Yeah, I mean, my, my family's business my parents and my grandfather they were in the fabric business where they uh, where they sold fabric to dressmakers and of course that industry has died out now uh, although it's yeah. i guess fashionable at the high end like vinyl records were there many retail fabric outlets where would she have bought the fabric in the first place so that that would have been somewhere like a draper or a haberdasher so the the but you know haberdashers i guess they're much probably quilters are the people that do still yeah. go into a shop and, and the bolts of fabric so you would have gone into a drapers and and bought your fabric which would have been up on display in in um on a on a roll or folded and you would have bought your fabric by the yard uh, depending on what you were having having it made into so yeah those kinds of establishments where they are just full of uh, different rolls of fabric that's the place that you start and then you take that to the dressmaker. And, and that is how, and that's of course how these scraps come to be left over, you know, and as soon as, as soon as you're buying more ready-made clothes, the opportunity to collect scraps is no longer so easy. And, and it's precisely because of this way of making clothes that Anne was able to acquire these scraps from of, of both her own and her friend's garments. Yeah, I remember my mother used to sell remnants. I'm guessing that's what they were known in the, the industry. Mm. I mm. guess that's the equivalent. It's a fascinating subject, Kate. Let's end with a, with a note about empire. You found that... Um, Mrs. Ann Sykes went to Singapore. I mean, I'm guessing that, and, and, and you found some fabric from there. I'm, I mean, the climate in Singapore is dramatically different from the climate in Lancashire. How did that change? And, yeah. and what does your dress diary of Miss Ann, Mrs. Ann Sykes tell us about the British Empire, its strength, its history, and, uh, and stuff that traditional historians might not have, un, uh, so to speak, uncovered? Mm. It's... The, the idea that she lived in this emerging settlement at that point where few European uh, people lived in the 1830s and, 18, and then into the 1840s, that, that was quite something. I mean, there were tiger attacks. The climate was dreadful. There's a piece of pirate flag in the album that, was, that belonged to, that she had acquired from somebody called Admiral uh, Cochrane. He was on anti-piracy duties in the in the region at that time. And that's all about empire. You know, the British Navy had sent out HMS Agincourt to the region to quell the Malay pirates who were, were kind of plundering merchant vessels that were running up and down the straits at that time. Um, so the, the desire to keep that flow of commodities from China and India flowing to North America and, and Europe was that the power of the British Navy was 
kind of being thrown at this. Right, and and of course, we, Singapore wasn't what we think of Singapore in the middle of the early nineteenth century. It was just a malarial island. It was almost uninhabitable. It was. It was. They're one of the people that features in the book. It was somebody called Maria Belestia, who is that? Who was an American? She was a. She was the wife of the first American consul, and her letters survive in the Massachusetts Historical Society. And she writes all about just this kind of the misery that she suffered living there as this woman who was very poorly equipped to to kind of face the climate. So um, yeah, it's a very interesting in. American connection. Astonishingly, yeah, I mean, it's astonishingly rich in, in uh, this this dress diary of Mrs. Anne Sykes. So finally, uh, uh, f- finally, uh, Kate, what doesn't dress tell us? I mean, it seems to tell us so much. Of, um, yeah, what, what, what are think, the questions I mean, about Mrs. Anne Sykes that? won't again so to speak be revealed by her dress diary or what she wore or the fashion industry what doesn't it touch or is it everything i think i think it it touches it touches so many things kind of socially politically globally um industrially all sorts of things what it doesn't get at and and what i really miss here is her voice i would love to know i would love to know um about her kind of personal um, experiences and, and to hear that voice. So although I although I think there is enormous um, kind of rich diversity of things here, I think that's what I miss the most is just um, hearing from Anne herself. <laughs>